Good evening. We are thankful that you are here this evening. We're thankful certainly to some of the visitors we've already mentioned, but to the visitors that are in our midst. We appreciate the opportunity to study together this evening. I want you to know off the bat that I, I am. I am thankful that you are here this evening. There are certainly some folks who aren't able to be here uh, on Sunday evenings, folks who aren't able to get out and drive in the, the dark uh, at night. There are some folks who have to work. There are some folks who are sick. In fact, uh, just about 45 minutes ago, I got my text message that I get from Miss Sylvia most Sunday nights that says we're in for the night. You know, we're not able to get out. I always tell her we, we understand. We know uh, Bill needs his rest, and they're not able to be here. And, and I'm certainly not suggesting that you have to check in with me every time, but, but we certainly know that there are people who, who just can't be here sometimes. And then at the same time, there are folks who just choose not to be here. And, of course, this is one of those days, as we said this morning, that some folks choose to do something different. And I want you to know that I appreciate you being here. I, I understand that, that worship is, is not all of Christianity, attendance at worship. But at the same time, it's, it's something tangible that we can sort of show to not only the world, but even as parents that we can show to our children and raise them up and to say that, that to attendance at worship is important. It's a way that I can show that I am committed to serving God and to being with his people. And so I'm thankful that you are here tonight. We're going to continue the study that we've begun last year in January of 2019. And it is a 52-week a study that we're taking over the course of 52 months if we're able to get through everything, considering just a word, one word in particular. And so tonight I thought we'd take just a real brief recap. Uh, we began last year by talking about some big picture words. This is a, a study book. It's a study guide and even a devotional book uh, that I kind of mixed together to, to put together and make a lesson. Uh, but it focused to begin on big picture words, creation, sin, wrath, and grace. And then at some point last year, we moved into what we began to study as Christian character. And since then, we've been talking about some of these words that should mean something to us as we practice mercy and love, forgiveness, kindness, self-control. We consider a lot of these, we read about them being the fruit of the Spirit. There are things that we should take and, and understand. It's important that we know these words and then apply them to our life and see how we can be better in these ways. Just for a brief preview, as we finish up tonight with the word holiness, then we're going to begin a study on some words that are in a group called last things. So we're going to talk about heaven. We're going to talk about hell and resurrection and judgment. And I don't remember all of them off the top of my head, but several words that deal with last things. And then God be willing, by the end of the year, we'll move into the next section in the book that is called relationships. We talk a lot here about relationships, how important they are, friendship, and even beyond that into a mother and a father, and those kinds of relationships that we have. And so we're going to consider those things. But tonight, we are going to consider the idea of holiness. You know, we think of God as holy. I don't know what comes to your mind when I just simply use the word holy or holiness. What we're after tonight is to try to take a, a better understanding of what the Bible says but we often think of God as holy. Many of us have had a chance over the years to view the movie Rudy, which of course was about the Notre Dame football player Rudy Rudiger, who 
scrapped and, and fought and tried to get on the field and did for a little bit. And it's a very inspiring movie if you've ever seen it. But as he's getting down, as he is struggling with not getting uh, what he wants and trying to get into the University of Notre Dame to be able to be on the football team, at some point he visits a church building nearby and he goes and this father stops, Father Kavanaugh stops and talks to him and he says as Rudy's trying to understand why and ask these questions about what he's doing and if he's done enough or if he needs to pray more. And the father says to him, he says, son, in 35 years of religious study, I've come up with two hard, incontrovertible facts. There is a God and I'm not him. When we think about holiness, that's some way, sometimes the way that we treat things. There is a God, but I'm not him. I don't know how far that is exactly from what we're going to talk about tonight. No, we're not God, and we're not going to be God, but we should strive to be holy as he is holy, as we read from 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse number 16. So one thing we do, if you've got a bulletin and you're following along in the outline, is we try to look at some of the words that are used in Scripture. The first one tonight in the Hebrew, in the Old Testament, is this idea of Kadesh. Very simply, Kadesh. I didn't put in the bulletin how many times it is used, but if you're making your own notes, it is used some 470 times in the Old Testament. It carries with it this idea of being sacred or consecrated. We said this morning, and we're going to talk about it both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, that really part of the idea of holiness is being set apart or distinct. And so when we read this word, and obviously we're not going to have time to go through all of the usages there in the Old Testament, but it is often used of a person, place, or thing, and it is holy if it is, I have to spell it out here, holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy if it is wholly devoted to the service of the Lord, totally wholly devoted to God. And so this word is used in a couple of different places. One passage is Exodus chapter 26 and verse number 34. We remember as we studied Exodus last year for a whole month here, and our young people did, as we talked about the tabernacle and the things in it and the way that it was designed, in verse number 34 of Exodus 26, it says, You shall put the mercy seat upon the ark of the testimony in the most holy, the Kadesh. Now what's interesting here, as you do the word study, if you have in your Bible there, and it says most holy, that's actually this word used twice. You shall put the mercy seat upon the ark of the testimony in the Kadesh Kadesh, the most holy. We've called it at times before the holiest of holies. So that is the area, the part of the tabernacle that we are talking about. Another passage that we are familiar with, even if maybe you didn't know it, but is found in Habakkuk chapter 2 in verse number 20. You're familiar with it because we sing it. The Lord is in his Kadesh, in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Habakkuk 2, 20. So we see this word again. 470 is a lot of times, but those are just a couple that you may be familiar with. Another passage or section that you may be familiar with is Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 19 is where we're going to look at specifically for just a moment. When we think about uh, this idea of being holy, the Levitical law that we read about in the book of Leviticus that was given to the people, the Levitical law deals directly 
with the mundane or the small details of holiness. If you remember last year's, we talked about Exodus and the old law. We talked about how we wouldn't like to live under that. Of all those things that you had to do, all the little things that needed to be done, it would probably be frustrating to most people. But the Levitical law dealt with that. One of the particular writers, he summarizes the spirit of these laws by saying this. The Israelites were called to point toward God and their distinctiveness was one way they could do that. They did not live separately from the people. Sound familiar? Does it sound like 2020? They did not live separately from the people, but their customs meant they were always distinguishable from other peoples. Do we live that way today? Are we holy in that sense? The holiness code then, and it's really found, if you turn to Leviticus, it's really found in about chapter 17 through, or excuse me, through chapter 26. Chapter 17 through 26. And all of these contain a series of customs, of moral prerogatives that are meant to designate Israel as God's. They belong to God. They are his people among the nations. And another writer sort of notes in particular that this code, these laws, is not simply a list of negatives or don'ts, but the law contains several positives. And if you turn to Leviticus 19, you see some of those who are, uh, they're listed through there, that there are things that they are going to do. As you look down in about verse 13 or verse 12, you see, and you shall not, and you shall not, and you shall not, and you shall not do all these things that go on through there. But then you get to verse 19. You shall keep my statutes. You move on over to later in the chapter, and again, for time's sake tonight, we won't go through all of it, but we see some admonitions that there's some positive things that they should do. They should not just abstain from evil. That's part of it. But they need to be product productive, productive of good and godliness we see even with the israelites the way they were supposed to be the way they were supposed to live there's some don'ts but there are some positive things as well and we can see that through the idea of this word holy now we move over to the new testament for just a moment and the word that is used in the greek is hagios now we talked about this word recently and i'm going to come back and refer to it in just a few moments but when we read this word in the New Testament, and it's used in some different forms, it usually describes holiness or distinctiveness. And as we said with the Old Testament word, it denotes a full dedication to the Lord. Now, in the New Testament, it is used some 229 times. 229 times in the New Testament. Now, that's not how often you're going to read the word holy, but certainly some of the forms of it. One that you are familiar with is Romans chapter 12 and verse number 1. You know it. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, hagias, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. If you have your Bible and you're following along, turn over to the book of Colossians for a moment. The reason that we've talked about this word recently, and some of you may remember, is found in Colossians chapter 1 and verse number 2. We're talking about the word holiness tonight, but what does it say there? Colossians 1, 2, beginning in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the Hagias, the saints. We talked about this word Hagias recently when we talked about our lesson on sainthood. 
If you were here for that lesson, we talked about the idea of, of how there are saints in the world that people profess and, and the Catholic Church and others would name these people as saints. Well, the word in the Bible that is used is the holy ones, the saints, Hagias. Now, if you're still in Colossians, look over at chapter 3 and verse number 12. We see it again, this time not talking about the saints, in particular the people. Therefore, as the elect of God, Hagias, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, and long-suffering. If we are the elect of God, if we are his people, we have to be holy, distinctive, set apart, totally dedicated to the Lord. Now, one thing that we usually do, and, and I'd like for us to continue with tonight, is talk a little bit about some of the devotional ideas that some of the writers put forth. I think it helps us as we drive home these points and understand these things. The first one tonight is entitled, Unlike Anything Else. The author says there's a barbecue restaurant nearby. I actually know this brother. He lives down in Alabama, uh, around Haleyville, Alabama. He said there's a barbecue restaurant nearby known for a dish called pork and greens. It's a layered dish of cheese grits, collard or turnip greens, and smoked pork in a little barbecue sauce, all topped with crispy fried onions. And now that I've lost you to hunger, try to come back again. My mouth was watering just reading it there. Down here in the South, it's a great combination of things that we love to eat. This brother says, we had a local preacher's lunch in at the restaurant one month. The guy sitting next to me said, what should he order? So I recommended the pork and greens since it's well known. And after he'd eaten a few bites, I asked him if he enjoyed it. And he said, it's unlike anything I've ever experienced. Unlike anything else. We first read this idea of the Kadesh, or really it's a cognate form of that word in Genesis chapter 1, or actually moving on over to chapter 2 and verse number 3. We were just here on Wednesday night, if you were in our auditorium Bible class with us here, and we were talking about uh, the creation and all the things that take place. And beginning in Genesis 1, we see this wondrous creation by a loving God. But we come to chapter 2 and verse 3, and it says, Then God blessed the seventh day, and he sanctified it. Now, the word there it's used, again, is the cognate or, or a type of the word that we talked about just a few moments ago. It's very, very similar, very, very close to that. But what does it say? Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. Now this is you know, a little bit of an odd to think about using this in connection with this story. But when God can, is talking about holiness here, the reason that it, he blesses it and he calls it holy day seven is because it was unlike any of the previous six Days. Again, it's a form of the word we already talked about, but we see that this is the first thing in the Bible that is labeled as holy or sanctified. It was unlike anything else. And as we commit to holy lives, that's what we're after. Again, we can't be like God. We can't create something the same way that he did. But as we are after holy lives, we must recognize that it demands living completely unlike anything else. Unlike anything else around us. We sometimes feel like the oddball. We sometimes feel like the odd person out because we don't mesh with the world. That is uncomfortable and it makes us feel bad sometimes. But if you mesh with the world and look like everyone else, you're doing something wrong. When we think about being holy, we have to live completely like anything else around us. 
And that's what God says there about the seventh day. And I think it's a pretty good description as we think about being holy. It's unlike something we've ever experienced. It's unlike something that the world even recognizes. Now, they can tell sometimes if you're holy, if you are different, but they realize that it's not like everyone else. And we think about that when we think about this idea of holy. So that we are distinct. This was the second one here. When we think about the Gettysburg Address, in November 1863, President Abraham Lincoln delivered his famous address to dedicate Gettysburg Battlefield as a national cemetery. With concise and powerful words, he admitted the, admitted the audience that day that they could do nothing to honor, consecrate, or hallow the land on which they stood. President Lincoln said, The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. You see, President Lincoln's message that day, the, the push behind his thoughts was, this ground isn't special because of what we do, but what we can do here, but because of what they did here. There's a somewhat connection to the idea of the land in the book of Exodus, chapter 3 and verses 1 through 12. You know it as a story of Moses at the burning bush. When Moses arrives there, when God begins to speak to him, God tells Moses that the ground on which he stands is holy. It's holy not because it's some geographical feature of land. We can't go to the same spot and there's, there's rope around it where you can't get to that particular piece of dirt because there's something special about it. It's holy because God was there. Moses doubts that he's capable of leading the, the, the people out of Egypt. God doesn't build Moses up by reminding him how qualified he is, though. He reminds him, he tells Moses, you can do this because I will be with you. In the same way of the land, it's not about what the land is. It's not about just what's in me. It's about what God is able to do. In response, God tells the Israelites, as we go through some of that story there, that he'll give them the promised land with its provisions, but he will not go with them because of the things that they did, particularly when they fashioned the golden calf to worship. They no longer viewed him as holy. They no longer viewed him as the mighty, holy God. And if you remember at that time, and we're moving on now to the passage that's listed there in Exodus chapter 33, but when you think about what takes place there with the golden calf, and even as God has told them this, then Moses intercedes on their behalf. And God relents and promises to go with them. And Moses then tells God, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Is it not in your going with us? so that we are distinct from every other people on the face of the earth. Moses doesn't want to go anywhere, even the promised land, that God won't go with them. Moses knows he and the Israelites are a holy people because of what they, of what they have, aren't a holy people because of what they have done, but because of what God has done in them. That we need to be distinct there's nothing special about this church building or this front pew or anything in particular unless we are blessed by God and he goes with us as we go with him. We must be distinct. The third and final uh, one that I would share with you here tonight before we have a couple of closing thoughts is the idea from, and if you have your Bible, you can be turning to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verses 1 through 8. 
I don't know how much you recall about some Greek mythology. I was not an expert. I remember having to study it in school, and and it was always interesting. But in ancient Greek literature, there were these ladies, these dangerous ladies that were known as sirens. They were attracting passing boats with their beautiful songs. And as they attracted these boats and these people closer to the shore that they were on, it would cause damage and shipwreck. They lure them with beautiful, pleasing singing, but at the same time, they're going to be destroyed. So as we read ancient Greek literature, in order to avoid the disaster that awaits when these sirens are singing their song, there are two stories in particular that are shared. One of them is Odysseus. He makes his crew fill their ears with beeswax, beeswax according to the story, so that they can't hear the songs. Not only that, but then he, because he is a bit more of an adventurer, asks to be tied to the mast of the ship and not to be let down no matter how much he begs. It's almost like trying to get how close he can get to hearing without being lured in by this beautiful singing. A second story comes from Orpheus and the Argonauts. The Argonauts avoided the sirens' dangers when Orpheus, who was with them, played his lyre and so beautifully and began to sing himself that they could no longer hear the haunting siren songs. What's interesting in the two different stories here is that Odysseus takes the white knuckle approach. He wants to be on the mast and tied down, but don't let me off, don't let me go. At the same time, Orpheus finds something better and stronger with the Argonauts to satisfy them. There's an interesting parallel here in that we will oftentimes Uh, Our holiness will be tried and tested, and there are times that we must take the route of resist at all costs. Hold me down, tie me down, don't let me go no matter how much I beg and plead. But then other times, like the Argonauts, we must also find and listen to the voice that is greater than our desires. When Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 there instructs the uh, Thessalonians to abstain from sexual sin, notice in verses 1 through 3 and then 7 through 8 that it comes out of the aim of pleasing God. At the end of verse number 1, just as you have received from us how you ought to walk and to please God. God is the standard of holiness. It is His glory and holiness that we should be most consumed with. There is the need for self-control, you notice in verse number 4. And our holy living results from knowing God in verse number 5. When we commit to holiness, we need to hear the voice of God more longingly than we hear the tempting calls from sin and temptation. That's what holiness is when we are after that. That the will of God is our sanctification, our holiness, that we would be following after Him. So a couple of points here from this lesson, and it will be yours. What is holiness? Well, as we said to begin tonight, it is uh, being set apart. When we think about the temple furnishings in Exodus chapter 40, specifically verse number 9, the temple furnishings even then are called holy. Why are they called holy? Well, they're set apart. They're designated for something. And when we think about this idea of being set apart... That encourages us to think about the way that we need to be. But at the same time, defining holiness as being set apart can have some undesired consequences. What's the one thing that some people do when they say, well, we need to be set apart? 
Well, then they step back and maybe they begin to have uh, this, their own section of the world. And they never leave. They never go to the store. They never go out in public. They never do anything. So if we say that as holy ones, we need to be set apart, then maybe there's an undesired consequence that we're never around anyone else. When we think about needing to be around others, we think we know that Christians need to be separate, but yet at the same time have to be a part of the world. Christians sometimes view holiness like a fancy suit or Sunday clothes, something to be protected for fear of contamination. But at the same time, we see that Jesus walked among sinners. So the perfect, perfect example that we have of holiness was someone who didn't just stay completely set apart, away from everyone else, but he even walked among those. You know, our young people have been studying this with the idea of the, the gospel uh, according to Luke. That Jesus was interacting with this and it drove the Pharisees and the Sadducees crazy. What are you doing? He eats with sinners. How can he do this? He's supposed to be this holy one, but he's eating with sinners. Well, Jesus expresses holiness by walking and living among brokenness, touching lepers, attending these dinners, eating with tax collectors. So maybe tonight, holiness for our understanding might not be best conceived as set apart. But if you've got your outline there in front of you, I challenge to see how many blanks I could get in there. Maybe the better idea is distinctiveness. Distinctiveness. God does not sanctify his people for their own benefit, but God sanctifies his people to bear, to wear, and then display his marks to the world. His markings of grace should be on us, and we should share that. People should be able to see that in us, and on us, and in everything that we do. It's not that we are set apart and we won't ever speak to anyone else who would not claim to be a Christian, but it's that we are distinctive. We're distinctive in so many ways, and we don't have time to get into all of those tonight. But we are distinctive in the things that we do, or at least we should be. And if we're not doing that, then maybe we need to consider our lives, even this night here in just a moment as we are about to sing this invitation song. But I want to leave you with one thought. And I think this kind of summed up the whole lesson in one simple sentence here. When we think about being holy... There was one particular writer, Stanley Hauerwas, who wisely said this, the first task of the church is to be the church. Think about that for just a moment and let that sink in. The first task of the church is to be the church. We are supposed to be seeking and saving the lost. Don't, don't even begin to think of trying to tear apart what we talked about this morning and what we built upon. Our goal is to seek and to save the lost. But the church only has a witness to the world insofar as it is distinct from the world. When we blend in like everyone else, then we don't have an opportunity to show them the glory of God and the mercy of God. The first task of the church is to be the church. If the church and the world are indistinguishable, then the church has no witness. We can't claim that there is something better if we are exactly like everyone else. So tonight, as we conclude these thoughts and we ask you to think about your life, are you being holy, distinctive, set apart, not away from everyone so that you have no influence, but being holy so that you can then show others the glory of God? That's what I think we should consider when we think about the way that holiness is talked about in the Bible. And tonight, we are about to sing this song that has been selected to encourage you to think about your holiness 
I'm afraid that like many things we've talked about, we set holiness up as this thing that we can't accomplish. God is holy. I can't get there. I'm not perfect. That's not true. We're not trying to be perfect. We're trying to be holy and distinctive. Tonight, maybe you're here and you're not a Christian, so you can't do that. You've not been set apart because you've never become a child of God. You've never allowed the Lord to add you to his church because you've obeyed his simple gospel commands. We'll be singing to encourage you. We'd study with you even this night if you would like to know more about what that means. Maybe you're here and you've done that. And you did leave with with joy in your heart one night or one day as you went down to the waters of baptism and walked or rose to walk in newness of life. And you know what that felt like. You felt distinctive, set apart, different. But then slowly that mud kind of starts creeping back on us and the sin of the world begins to weigh us down and we realize that we're like everyone else. Our sin separates us from God. Maybe you're here tonight and you're a Christian and you stand in need of coming back to Him. Appreciate Brother Jerry mentioning class this morning. We try to say it quite often from this pulpit. No one, absolutely no one, within the sound of my voice right here tonight has to leave with worry on their heart. You don't have to leave with fear or doubt in your heart or in your mind tonight. We sing this song of invitation each time that we are gathered together so that we can leave as a unified body, holy, distinctive, going out into the world and showing the glory of God. But it takes each one of us being right in the sight. And if you need to make a change tonight, you can do so now as we stand together and as we sing.